Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 24. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and, after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, Antichius and Tropimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the feast of unleavened bread and joined five, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up, dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I have lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that will be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. This is God's word. Well, good evening. My name's Matt. I'm one of the ministers here. Let me say as well, welcome to you, especially if you're joining us. You've just arrived in London. It's very good to have you with us this evening. And we are looking at this uh, Book of Acts for the next few week, uh, weeks. Um, in fact, we're not going to we'll spend most of our time this evening uh, from verse 17 onwards, but good to have that bit read for some context and also a bit of a reminder. If you are feeling a little bit sleepy uh, this evening, I'll try to be done by midnight. Um, but, um, 
Shall we pray? <laughs> Father, thank you for uh, your word to us. Um, we need the work of your spirit in each of us to help us to understand these truths. And so please, would you be at work amongst us that we might be changed by what you're saying to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there's lots on uh, TV at the moment. September, October time is usually the start of all sorts of new series. So I imagine that you're uh, up to date with uh, Downton Abbey or uh, The X Factor, uh, Spooks. I sort of I've dipped into all of them. But I must say the thing that's grabbed me um, is uh, a program on Monday nights uh, called Sandhurst Military Academy. I know it's not very down with it, but um, it's caught me um, because it's fascinating. You see these young uh, officer recruits being dragged through the mud week after week. I mean, it is. Uh, it's miserable. I don't know if any of you have uh, done that sort of thing. But well, week after week, these young men who are the future leaders of the British Army are, are drilled in the main message. Uh, and the training motto, the motto for Sandhurst Military Academy, I don't know if uh, you know it, anyone know it, is serve to lead. That's the motto, serve to lead. And uh, week after week, as they're sort of crawling through the mud, that's what they're reminded of, that before they're to lead others, and what leadership really will be for them is serving people. And I think that's uh, an unusual motto to have stood the test of time. But it really has stood the test of uh, time at Sandhurst. But it's unusual to have as a motto in a world where leadership is something that thousands of books are written about, but you won't find a huge amount about servant leadership. You'll find lots about uh, power leadership. Uh, you'll have life coaches who come into your office and tell you all about power leadership or fulfilling your potential as a leader. Uh, very much the flavor of the month. And for some, that issue of leadership, this issue of leadership, would stop them looking, for example, at the Christian faith. Uh, they might look in at the scandals that we read about in the newspapers of church leaders and think, well, if that's the case, therefore I do not need to investigate the Christian faith. I don't need to go a step further in that direction, some would think. For others, we get hold of the heart of the Christian faith, uh, God's grace, message of freedom, of liberation from sin, and slavery. And yet we come into church and we think, well, why would we need leaders? If that's the case, why would we need leaders? Why would we need structure? What's going on there? Might be the question. Now, of course, on both of those, the, the problem is not uh, having leaders in and of themselves. Uh, we all have leaders, informally or formally. Informally, people rise to the top. In some ways, it's better to, to choose, to have a choice over who's going to lead, informally or formally. We all have leaders. The key issue is, what sort of leaders are we going to have? What sort of leaders do we look for? What sort of leaders do we support and encourage? And for us as a church, 10 years uh, into our life uh, together, and with some new elders uh, recently, Appointed, you can see the big life-size pictures on the door in the way uh, in, if you haven't spotted those uh, already. This is pertinent. This is pertinent for us as a church as we think about that sort of thing. 
And for you, if you're new here this evening, I hope that this will be helpful as you think about what the Bible says about how to choose a church and to look for that. I hope that the next three weeks might be helpful for you as you do that, as we look at the leaders of a church, next week the dangers of a church, and then the third week the hope for a church. So this week, uh, the leaders of a church. And we're in the book of Acts. It's a brilliant book. It's a brilliant book about the risen Lord Jesus and what he kept doing when he stepped out of that tomb all of those years ago. And it tells us that the risen Jesus was unstoppable in spreading his kingdom. You couldn't stop him. He just continued to do things. He spread his kingdom. Jerusalem, Rome, the ends of the world, no problem. He kept doing it. It tells us that he did that. But it also tells us how he went about doing that. So we see that he did that by his spirit. As his spirit took the word, changed lives, grew churches all around that part of the world and beyond. And this chapter, if you've lost your your place, it's page uh, 1017. This chapter, chapter 20, records a typical sermon that Paul gave to church leaders. This one happened to be at Ephesus, but probably typical of the sort of thing he was saying to the church leaders as he gathered them together. And here he is speaking, we're told in verse 17, to the elders of the church in Ephesus. i just pause on that for a minute. Uh, elders, uh, here biblically, uh, are plural, a plural team of people, so that it's not led by, uh, by one person. The responsibility doesn't fall on one person, but is spread among a, a team. Uh, again, here biblically, uh, in line with what we've been thinking about in Genesis 2, these would be men uh, leading the, the church. But as part of the family, uh, elders, deacons, their wives, families, the picture of the church is brothers and sisters serving the Lord Jesus together. But leaders, yeah, leaders leading God's people. That's the picture here. Some of them were elders who taught, but all of them were those who were to model the Christian life. All of them were to pastor individuals. They were all involved in that and managing the church. And now the question as we we come to the sermon especially is what what were they to be like? What sort of leaders were they to be? Were they to be uh, flashy, funny, uh, sinless, successful in business? What are we going to be told about them? Well, Paul lays out his pattern of ministry. He lays that out before them, encouraging them to follow his pattern. And we'll see three things about Paul. We'll see that he served humbly, he taught openly, and he held his life cheaply. So let's look at those in turn. First of all, uh, Paul served humbly. Verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. So the first thing that he says is, verse 19, I served, or literally I slaved for the Lord. That's what he wants them to remember, first of all. He says, I 
I served, I slaved for the Lord. Now, it's interesting. He could have spun it any way that he'd liked, really. I mean, he did so many things when he was with him in Ephesus, uh, chapter 19, a bit before. Uh, That was his time with them. He could have picked up on a number of things. He could have said, you remember the, the miracles that I did when I was with you? told in chapter 19. He was doing such extraordinary miracles. People just wanted to, to get a, a touch of his handkerchief. Then when the last time, no, I'm not going to go there, the last time anyone wanted to get near your handkerchief, I don't, I don't know. Ever, people wanted to touch Paul's handkerchief because he was doing such extraordinary miracles. I mean, he could have said, don't you remember? Remember the miracles that I did? He didn't start there. He, he could have said, do you remember the three-month sermon series that I did? That's what we're told that he did to start with. He he went into the synagogue and for three months he just preached. He could have said, do you remember that preaching series I led you through? He could have done that. Or he could have said, do you remember the the number of people um, who were converted under my ministry? Do you remember remember that? But he doesn't. Where does he start as he's seeking to train these leaders in what matters most? Where does he start? Verse 19, I served the Lord. I slaved for him. That, says Paul, that's, that's the first place to start as a leader, says Paul. That's the call of a leader. And then he goes on to explain what that looked like, verse 19. I serve the Lord literally with humility and with tears and with testing. Those three things are parallels there. Paul's ministry involved humility. The idea there is of of humiliation. It's the idea connected with that. Uh, Chapter 19, he was disgraced publicly. Chapter 19, he was laughed at. He was bad-mouthed. It's humiliating for Paul publicly. It came with humility. It came with tears as well. Presumably the tears of, of sadness for people who just, just turned away from Jesus, just moved a, a bit from him. Sadness for them as they took a lifestyle that just took them in a different direction from him. Sadness for them. Tears, says Paul. There were tears. And there was testing as the Jews sought to, to bring him down. And so Paul says, verse, um, verse 18, you know... You know how I live. They learned from his example. Now many, don't you imagine, many would have seen Paul up front, the the public figure. They'd have seen Paul. But what Paul's appealing to here is he's saying, look, you know, you you saw something of the behind the scenes, didn't you? You saw something of the humiliation, the tears, the testing. You, You know, don't you? You know how I lived amongst you when I was with you. That's the call of the leader, to serve the Lord like that. I remember a few years ago uh, now, a number of years ago, I was, um, I was in a church, and I, I kind of knew the leader from, from uh, I, I would sit there, and I'd know him from sort of up front. And I knew him that way for a while, but didn't particularly know him. And then um, I got to know him a bit more. And I can remember there was one time when he had to take a, 
um, he had to take a stand on something that um, he and the leaders of the church were convinced the, the Bible was saying, and others were saying uh, the opposite, and it was harming uh, people. And so for the good of people, he had to make a stand on that. And I remember being at that meeting, it was quite a large meeting, and it sort of came to a, a head, a public meeting, and it came to a head, and, and the meeting ended. And I was, um, I was sort of clearing up a bit, and, and, and then about to head home, and everyone had sort of gone, and I started, I started walking home. And as I walked and turned the corner, there was just this sound that caught my attention, and I stopped, and, and I listened again. And it was the sound of someone crying. And I, that's odd. I wonder who that is. And I walked round the corner, and it was this guy, this leader of the church, in, in tears. I couldn't, I couldn't work it out. I had no frame of reference for what to do in that. I can't remember what I said. I, can't, I think I probably mumbled something extremely unhelpful. I don't know what I said. But I can remember thinking, I had no idea. I had no idea that the guy I saw up front who looked so together and yet was taking a stand for the good of people that behind the scenes that was going on I had no idea at all and many many here shed tears I know that for those that you care for here many of you have experienced something of that as you've sought to care for people Many of you know something of what that feels like, to serve the Lord, wanting the best for people, and knowing what it feels like to shed tears. Can I, can I say I've been on the staff for a, for a couple of years here? Can I say that there are sometimes uh, tears? Sometimes it's because we're all a bit tired and emotional. We need to have a... Sometimes it's that. But there are tears for people as well. There are tears for people, and I don't know how to say this, but I think it's important that I do, that the staff, Matt, cry for people here. Cry because they want the good for people. And I've seen that in conversations when you're speaking, and the eyes just just go slightly. I've seen that. Now, here's the pattern for all of us who are leaders in whatever form. Paul served humbly. He slayed for the Lord, for the good of people. First then, Paul served humbly. Here's the second thing. Let's pick it up. Paul taught openly. He taught openly. Now, teaching is not the whole. We've just seen his lifestyle, but it is the heart. And in a world city, don't you think the great pressure on Paul was to just fit in with the culture and do what the culture wanted to do but verse 20 verse 20 you know you know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you but have taught you publicly and from house to house so Paul taught what was helpful what was profitable he didn't just teach what they wanted to hear he preached what he knew they needed to hear even if it wasn't what they wanted to hear That's what Paul's saying. I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful for you. Now, don't you find, just look down at those verses, don't you find that striking? Do you see um, what Paul's saying in verse 20? He's saying, look, there were different places. There was public and there was private. Uh, Verse 21, there were different groups of people. Verse 21, there were the Jews and there were the Greeks. But 
verse 21, it was the same message. Different places, different people. But it was the same message. What was the message, verse 21? That they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. It was both repentance and faith. What's repentance? Repentance is to turn from something and to go in a different direction. What's faith? It's to rely, to believe, to rely on someone. And that is the start of the Christian faith. It's the start of the Christian faith, but it's also the heart of the Christian faith. In other words, it's the start. If you're sitting here and you think, well, how does someone become a Christian? It's this. It's repentance and faith. And if you're a Christian here, how do you live? Repentance and faith. It's the same. It's the start of the Christian faith, but it's the way on in it uh, as well. What's repentance? I was reading a book this week on um, confession. What, what does confession look like in the, in the Christian life? Or repentance, what does that look like? And they made this, um, I found this a helpful way of putting it. They're talking about um, relationships and, and the way that all of us sort of deal with um, friendships and relationships and what we do when we know that there's kind of something that we've that we've not done right or we've said something wrong to someone and we know that what we need to do and I think of times this this week when I've done that where I know I've just needed to have a word or say look sorry about that I got that wrong but what do we do we just try and be nice we just try and be nice. We try and nice the person out of it. And the person said, and this is the helpful thing for me, the helpful thing was the problem with doing that is you don't know how long you've got to be nice for. <laughs> isn't, that the, isn't that the problem? And you laugh because I think you all probably do that because I do that as well. You just don't know how, how long am I meant to be nice to this person for. Is it, a, is it a day? Is it a week? Is it a month? Is it, and you know some people live a lifetime like that. Trying to be nice to someone because you never want to go back to where it all went wrong and talk about that. And we know that what we should do is say sorry, say I was wrong, seek forgiveness and go forward in hope and grace. And the Bible says, verse 21, that that's the heart of the Christian message. God wants us to turn to him in repentance and have faith. He doesn't want us to just try and nice him out of it. Just try and be nice to him for as long as we can in life. And yet many of us might live that way. How long do I have to be nice to God for? A day, a week, a month, a lifetime? But the Christian news is so much better than that. It's that God calls us to repentance, coming to him and saying, yes, God, I'm I'm wrong. I've lived my life ignoring you. That's wrong. Now, can you see why Paul might hesitate to preach that? That's not very culturally acceptable, is it? To preach that actually living without God is wrong. And yet that's exactly what Paul did. That's the first half. But the second half is that God calls us then to rely on Jesus Christ as the only one who can deal with it. He doesn't just rub our noses in our sin for the sake of it. No, he wants to take us back to the point when it all went wrong so that it can all be put right again in Jesus Christ. That's the Christian good news. 
But it's just what we need in the Christian life as well. It's just what I need each week, each day, to be reminded that there are actions and attitudes that I have to others and towards God that are not right. And I need to be called back to repentance and then faith. Now, what does that look like for us? Just something quickly on the how and and the what. What do verses 20 and 21 look like in terms of the how for us? To see verse 20, you know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. In the church, our, our size, where we are, that, that does mean that as a, as a church, the small groups are so important. Being in a small group here is so important, whether that's a midweek knowing God group, a student group. Because no one person can, can do this work It's a team. It's a team of elders. It's a church family where we serve one another. It can't all come through one person. And so the publicly and the the house from house to house is done in our small groups and from the front. The two work together. That's something on the how. How about something on the what? Well, verse 21. All of us need to be Reminded of repentance and faith. That's the Christian walk. Repentance and faith. Until heaven, that's normal Christian living. Until heaven, that's normal Christian living. If you've been a Christian for a while, I've been a Christian Christian for about 20 years. Um, It's tempting to think, well, maybe one day I'll grow out of repentance and faith. No. I repented and believed when I became a Christian. But it's normal that I go on repenting and trusting in Jesus. And if you've become a wedge, just join the club. This is what we're doing as a church family, repenting and trusting in Jesus together. It's what we're doing as a church. So there's the second thing about Paul. He, he taught openly. Here's the last. He held his life cheaply. He held his life cheaply. Verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace." In short, what does he say? He says, I didn't know, and yet I did know. I didn't know what was particularly coming up, and yet I knew enough. The Holy Spirit warned me that in every city I went into, there'd be hardships. Every place that I went, there'd be a prison just around the corner from me, a riot, a beating. Every city he went to, all of the way up to Jerusalem, he was warned that in every city that would face him so the question is i don't know question is why did he go isn't that your question why did he go i mean he he knew but he didn't know but he knew enough why did he keep going well verse 22 he was compelled by the spirit and presumably the means that the spirit used was verse 24 was that he made a calculation he made a calculation, verse 24. I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race. 
and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. So the big thing that dominated his horizon was the task that God had given him. That was the big thing, the big picture. What was the task? Testifying to the good news, that's the gospel, the good news of God's grace. It was a good job to have. It was a good task to have. So I was thinking about this. What's, when you think of uh, hard jobs and, and good jobs, I, I, I mean, those, those guys who have to go and knock on the door of a, of a soldier who's been lost in Afghanistan and go and tell the parents, that must be one of the worst jobs in the world. Breaking bad news. That must be one of the worst jobs in the world. One of the best jobs in the world must be breaking good news to people. Imagine, imagine that your job every day was to go and break some good news to someone. Tell them that their mortgage had been paid off or, or go around hospitals and say that there was a cure for cancer. And every morning you woke up and you just had to tell them good news. Well, Paul says, my, my big horizon is I've got the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That's the task. That's the race. That there's a saviour who's come into the world to deal with our terminal problem of sin and death. He's come into the world with good news to say that. He's taken our sin on himself and risen from the grave to beat death. And Paul says, I did a calculation. That was the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. And so I consider, verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing compared to that. Yeah, look, there's pain and hardship that I have to take on myself to keep going in that, to finishing the race. But he's saying, look, when I, when I think about it, I'm taking that on board because God's given me this task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Here was a man who said, look, the model for me was finishing the race. Um, next year, it's the Olympics. I imagine that one of the... Um, Olympic stories that will be wheeled out again uh, is that brilliant uh, time in 1992. Some of you might remember uh, this. Some of you might not have been born. I don't know. But um, <laughs> scary, isn't it? <laughs> Feeling old. Derek Redmond was a British sprinter in the 400 uh, metres uh, semi. Uh, and he was running uh, in the back straight I think that's the second last straight, is it? He's running in the back straight. And as he's running, he's doing quite well in the race. Some of you can remember this, but if you've ever pulled a muscle, you just can't imagine the pain of this. He's running. And then he, his, he just pulls up. His hamstring is just torn and shot to pieces. And he sort of, he hobbles and he hobbles. And all of the other runners run on uh, ahead of him. And there he is. And he's slumped on the track with his hands on the back of his uh, hamstring. And, uh, and that's it. The, the race has gone. The, the dream has, has gone from before his eyes. And you can, uh, you can sort of see the, the cogs turning in his mind, and he's kind of making a calculation, I guess, a bit like this. And he's kind of thinking something like this to himself. I just I want to finish the race. And if you've ever seen the, the scene, it's an extraordinary bit. He just, he just gets up, and he just starts hobbling towards the end of the race and people think what's he doing and assistants run on and, and say stop stop doing this you'll damage it more and he pushes him aside and he just wants to finish the race and then the guy runs out from the side you think who's this guy and it's his dad his dad comes and supports him 
And the two of them cross the line together and the crowd are up on their feet and it's just one of the magic Olympic moments and I think the Visa and the Nike ads all use it now but it's an extraordinary, <laughs> it's an extraordinary moment of a guy. What's he saying? He's saying, I want to finish the race. I want to finish the task. That's what comes first. And what comes second is I know that I'm going to have to get from here no hamstring, to there, I'm going to have to take some pain on myself. But I consider the pain is secondary to finishing the race. And Paul was saying, look, that was, that's my pattern. That's my pattern as a leader. I consider my life, the the pain that I have to take on myself, worth nothing if only I may finish the task. That was Paul's pattern. He held his life cheaply so that he would do that. Of course, that was Paul's pattern. But of course, Paul's pattern was a pattern that he'd learnt from someone else. Paul's pattern, you see, was Jesus Christ's pattern. See, there was another occasion when someone else would be departing would have a final conversation with some leaders, would be preparing them for their futures. And it was Jesus. And he would then go up to Jerusalem, the same city. He didn't have to be warned because he knew right from the start, from the moment that he was in a manger, the angels were saying it over him, but the plan was from all eternity that Jesus would go to Jerusalem and die on a cross. And Jesus knew that that's where it would end that he would serve, that he would teach, that he would hold his life cheaply, hold it as nothing. Here's what Philippians 2 says of him. He was in very nature God. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Paul's pattern was Jesus's pattern. Now how do we respond just as we close? How do we respond to this? Look, if you're looking in on the the Christian faith, remember we said at the start that for some people they would say, well, I don't need to investigate the Christian faith. I don't need to look in on it because I can immediately write it off. But you see here in this chapter, the Christian faith that the Bible has within it Uh, a critique of the sort of leaders that you probably fear and an encouragement towards the sort of leadership that you probably desire. It's in here. And Jesus Christ is at the top of that as the leader. So can I encourage you, if you're looking in, keep looking. Mentioned Christianity Explore, keep looking. It's a good place to go. Secondly, how do we respond if we're leaders? Uh, Some of us as Elders, church leaders, uh, small group leaders, but primarily, I guess, for the elders here this evening. Paul is saying, look, live out this pattern. What's the most important thing? Verse 19, where does he start? I slaved. I slaved for the Lord. Keep going in that, if you're doing that. Keep going in that. And lift up your eyes to the task of testifying to the gospel, the good news of God's grace. 
But for all of us, what sort of leaders do we want? What sort of leaders do we want? God encourages us here to want leaders like this and to encourage our leaders to live this out, to encourage them in that. So pray for them. The leaders are fallen, just as we all are. Need to look to Jesus Christ. Let me just close with... Um, I think people say this sometimes at, at weddings, but I think it holds uh, true for us as for leaders and people together. Sometimes the guy speaking or the, the couple over there and he'll say, um, I want you to think of your marriage as a bit like a triangle. There's, there's uh, the husband and the wife at the sort of bottom of the triangle. And then at the top is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more the two of you just look at each other, the less able you'll be to actually serve one another. So what you need to do is look at Jesus. And the more you do that, the more you look at him, the closer you'll be to each other. And I think that holds for us as a church family. Some in leadership, uh, some not. We're going to sing in a minute. To God be the glory. Well, may he be glorified as he uses us, sinful people, And as we fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, we look to him again. We look to him again. And then in him we meet as sinners at the foot of the cross, serving one another and him. Let's pray together. Consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Father, we pray that you would fill each of our uh, horizons uh, with our great Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his grace to us. Please would you help Uh, each of us, to keep going in the task that uh, he's given to uh, us of testifying to his goodness. Please would our eyes be on him. Uh, Grow us in these things, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.